0: Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Those are verses 97 to 104 of Psalm 119, verses 97 to 102 of which are the Psalm appointed for today, Wednesday, May the 25th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along. We are... um... The last couple of days, we've been in the book of Deuteronomy, and today we're transitioning over to another one of those books of the Apocrypha, um, and, and that is the book of Baruch. Uh, and so it's it, we, we don't always use that. Again, it, when we read these lessons from this, if we were in a service, you know, that when somebody read it, if they read an Old Testament lesson, if they read from Deuteronomy, for instance, then what would happen would be we would have we would say um, the word of the Lord, and the response would be thanks be to God. But when if we read this in the same service, we would only say here ends the lesson because we're not claiming it to be the word of God. What we believe the Book of Baruch is is that it is a reflection of Baruch the scribe of jeremiah who's mentioned in jeremiah 1 1 and so we believe that he wrote this as a reflection on what he sees sort of the it's sort of a sequel to or yeah i guess that's or an epilogue one or the other to the book of jeremiah and to the book of lamentations which is also written by jeremiah so he begins with oh israel this is in uh, chapter four uh, three sorry verses 24 to 37 O Israel, how great is the house of God and how vast the territory that he possesses. It's great and has no bounds. It's high and immeasurable. And now here we go into an odd place. (laughs) The giants were born there who were famous of old, great in stature, expert in war. God did not choose them nor give them the way to knowledge. So they perished because they had no wisdom. They perished through their folly. Uh Uh-oh. Who are these giants? These giants are the Nephilim, the people that are mentioned in um, in Genesis six four right before the flood, and and they are the the uh, cause in so many ways of the flood because they're the cause of the wickedness that existed on the earth. These are angels who abandoned their heavenly habitations. They were the sons of God who came down and saw that the sons of men, the daughters of men, were beautiful, and so they began to, to procreate with them. So it, it, when Jesus says that in heaven we're like angels and that we don't procreate, he doesn't mean they're incapable. No, they took on human form and became men, but they became the giants, the mighty men of old. And you might think this is weird and it's creepy and you've never heard this before, but, but we need to we need to get a grip on on who this is because we, there's been there's been too much sort of bad teaching out there because we prefer not to deal with this but there are spiritual realities that became physical realities as well in the same way that jesus became incarnate so we've got to deal with this. And so what happens is, and, and the, we see this in the New Testament, actually. Jesus quotes some uh, from the book of Enoch more than once. Uh, Peter does, and Jude does. So all of them are influenced by that. But we also see uh, hints of that in some of Paul's writings as well, because he will refer to things that come from the book of Enoch, and and so he's making sort of dogmatic statements sometimes about that. Doesn't mean we think Enoch is inspired, and that it's... That it Does tell us is, is that the New Testament writers and also Jesus approvingly refer to some of the things, some of the things in that book, and it's not even in the apocrypha. So I mean, it's, it's even further, it's one step further away than that. It's in what's known as the pseudopigrapha, and, and that is we, we don't know what these are, but we do know and recognize that they influenced greatly both rabbinic Judaism and early Christianity. There's a supernatural worldview that's at work here. And obviously we see it here in this writing of Baruch that nobody's doubting this. There's, there's a belief that these giants existed. Goliath would have been one of them. It didn't matter how many times you try and evade that. But the reality is is, is that there have been plenty of skulls and skeletons that have been found in this region that would give rise to um, the truth that these ones existed, and so it's weird, and it's strange, and it's probably not something you're accustomed to. I'm going to encourage you to look up on YouTube, go there, and look up Nephilim, N-E-P-H-I-L-I-M, but pair that with Michael Heiser, H-E-I-S-E-R. I think Heiser's probably the best on on the Nephilim. He, he's a, a one of the, the head guys at Logos Bible Software, so he, he's not a kook, uh, he he's very mainstream, but he, he's an incredible scholar, and I highly recommend looking at his work. Anyway, so, so he sa- he's saying of them, God didn't choose them. They, they fell from grace, nor give them the way to knowledge. They had certain knowledge, but not fullness, and they certainly didn't possess wisdom. Who has gone up into heaven and taken her and brought her down from the clouds? Who's gone over the sea and found her? We're talking about wisdom here, and will buy her for pure gold. No one knows the way to her or is concerned about the paths to her. But he who knows all things, God, knows her. He found her by his understanding. He who prepared the earth for all time, filled it with four-footed creatures. He who sends forth the light, and it goes, called it, and it obeyed him in fear. The stars shone in their watches and were glad. He called them, and they said, Here we are. Which is exactly the same thing that Abraham says. Again and again to the Lord. They, the stars, shone with gladness for him who made them. This is our God. No other can be compared to him. He found the whole way to knowledge and gave her to Jacob, his servant, and to Israel, whom he loved. Now, Jacob and Israel are the same person. <laughs> but we're also told that, that he Jacob was the one that God loved. And so it says that, that Jacob received wisdom. Now, Joseph would have been the place I would have gone. I would have said Joseph had wisdom if we wanted to go back in time to that place. Afterwards, she appeared upon the earth and lived among men. And we live in that time if we ask for the Holy Spirit, because that's the spirit of wisdom. So we've got to bring forth wisdom on the earth. Christians should be the wisest people. Jesus says, in fact, be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. And he's, so he's calling us to lives of wisdom. And again, if I point back to Solomon, what, we, what do we see? We see that the, the smartest thing Solomon did was ask for wisdom. And it was given to him. And then everything else besides. So when we pray, pray for wisdom. We should always be praying for wisdom, wisdom in specific circumstances. Whenever we feel uh, out of our depth and confused, just stop and pray and ask God for wisdom. You know, we, we we can speak without wisdom. We can speak with worldly wisdom. And I think if we've seen anything clearly for the last two years at least, what we've seen is a lack of wisdom. We've seen people speaking out of their hat on things. Sometimes those people are the experts who say, well, the science changed. Well, there was no science behind your first statement. You made it up. The six-foot social distancing thing completely made up. There's no science behind that, and it's not even the standard in other parts of the world. So when, when we speak, we need to speak with wisdom as Christians. We need to be able to evaluate situations, and we need wisdom to evaluate those situations. We need wisdom to, to evaluate, frankly, whether or not we're being lied to. And that's the important place to start. Here in in, uh, the gospel today, in Luke 12, 22 to 31, Jesus says to the disciples, therefore, I tell you, and he's just told them that that what they need to do is lay down their lives. And so what he's going to tell them is what true wisdom looks like. He says, therefore, I tell you, don't be anxious about your life, what you'll eat, about your body, what you'll put on, for life's more than food and the body more than clothing. And Jesus doesn't just teach it, he lives it. He, that's what he did when he went out in the wilderness and was tempted after a 40-day fast. It's also, he's not worried about his life here on earth. He, he, he constantly is living a life of radical trust. And the way that you do that is by living also a life of radical obedience. You can't separate those two things one from another. You you can't live a life of radical trust if you're being radically disobedient to the Word of God, to the way that He teaches you to live. It, it doesn't make any sense... To then say, oh, I'm trusting God that he'll provide for everything, but I'm not living a life of radical obedience to the one that I say I'm trusting because then I'm going to blame him for failing to do what he said he would do. No, no. Radical obedience has to be paired with radical trust. Consider the ravens, he says. They neither sow nor reap, but they have, they have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. I mean, they exist, and sometimes he uses us. I mean, we feed lots of birds every day, including some big old crows that I would have called a raven if I didn't know slightly better than that. But, but it's true that, that God will provide for them, that they live without working for that. They find food that God provided. He says, how much more value are you than the birds? I mean, it seems simple. But there are people who don't know that, who don't understand that, that we are more important than the other parts of creation because we alone were created in the image of God. And that matters. It matters now, and it matters eternally. He said, which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life through your anxiety? And the answer is clearly nobody. If then you're able to do as small a thing as that, then why are you, if you're unable to do a small thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? If your anxiety doesn't produce even one hour of extra life, then what do you think it's going to add to anything else? Anxiousness, fear, is never the solution to anything. Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Again, he's gone back to the same thing, neither sow nor reap, toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. God takes delight, he says, in the ravens. He takes delight in the lilies of the field, and that Solomon in his glory wasn't even arrayed like this. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O oh, you of little faith? Jesus is saying, how much value do you think you have to the Father? Don't you think you're more valuable than the, than the uh, birds of the air or, the, or the, um, the grass of the field? Don't you see that? You can trust him, is what he's saying, because you're of infinite value and worth. To the Father, you're created in His image. I mean, he's continuing that same teaching that he had from after the, um, the teaching on the Lord's Prayer when he teaches them that, no, you, you've, you've just got to trust in the good Father that you have. Hey, if, if, if evil people like you know how to give good do- gifts to their children, don't you think the Father in heaven, the one who is good, knows how to give good gifts to his children? So he's saying the same thing here. He's, he's telling them how loved they are and how much they can trust their Father. And don't seek what you're to eat and drink and be worried. And he what he says up above, don't don't be worried about all those things. For the nations of the world seek after those things, and your father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. And it's the the, it's the C.S. Lewis quote that if you um, if you seek earth, then you won't get either heaven or earth. But if you seek heaven, then you'll get heaven with earth thrown in the balance. And it's hard to do that. You know, it, it's hard to do that because we don't. <laughs> we don't practice it. We don't, we don't pursue the kingdom of God. We're pursuing other things. We, we don't heed this teaching because ultimately we don't believe it, and we, we'll grab onto something. It's like losing your balance and then, you know, reaching out and grabbing something to keep you from losing your balance rather than working on your balance. And so that's what we're, we're intended to do here is, is that we're intended to seek the kingdom. So my admonition today is just do it for a little while, right? Set that as the priority for the day. Just, just stop right now and pray, Lord, show me what it means to seek your kingdom in the moment that I'm in. What would it look like if I laid down my fears and concerns about everything else and just cared about your kingdom the way that Jesus cared about your kingdom? What would it look like if I were to do that right now? What would the rest of my day look like? It, would, would I reprioritize my day? Would I do things differently today if that were my goal, was to seek the kingdom of God and trust him for everything else? In the passage from James, he, he's telling people how to live. He says, is anyone of, among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anybody cheerful? Let him sing praise. So what's his response? What's his actual, what's he saying here? It's seeking the kingdom of God. If you're suffering, then pray and ask God to heal you. If you're cheerful, let him sing praises to God because you have reason to. Is any among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let him pray over them. Over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And I know a lot of people who who practice that very thing. We practiced it at Pauly's Island, and and I've practiced it all through my ministry is, is that I believe that God did tell us to pray. Because what we're saying is not that we don't trust modern medicine, what we're saying is we don't trust the science ultimately, we trust God who gives the healing. In the same way that Paul gives an agrarian example and and says that it's God who gives the growth. You do the work that you're given to do, but God's the one who ultimately gives the growth or doesn't. And so here, that's what we're saying is, is that we can trust in modern medicine while at the same time ultimately knowing that life and death lies in the hand of God. Healing lies in the hand of God. Everything lies in the hand of God. His will is what will be done, whether through a physician or not. I'm not encouraging anything like Christian science. I mean, when, when Will fell we didn't, and had this traumatic brain injury, we didn't just stand there and pray over him. No, we took him to the hospital. But, but we were very clear with the doctors and everybody else that, that we're not going to hold you accountable one way or another. In the end, uh, we're going to hold you accountable for mistakes that you make or whatever along the way. But we're also going to praise you when you do the right things. But ultimately, life and death in this situation is not up to you. It, it's God's will that's going to be done here and so we need to be clear in those two things to be able to separate that. So when we do call for the elders of the church and so the first thing I did was put out a plea on Facebook for people to pray and to storm the gates of heaven on behalf of my son. And so I did anoint him. I anointed him every single day while he was in intensive care and prayed over him every single day I anointed him with oil. And But then he goes on. That's not the end of this, though. And that's the problem is too many people see this as the end of what James says to do. He doesn't say that. He says the prayer of faith will save the sick man, and the Lord will raise him up. Yep, we're all in agreement. And if he has committed sins, he'll be forgiven. Those two things are linked in in James's way of looking at it. That, that it's not karma, and it's not necessarily punishment for sin, but if there's sin involved in this, the healing... And the, the forgiveness will, will go hand in hand. And not only that, we see it when Jesus heals the, the man that the friends have to let down in front of him. When he heals the paralytic, first thing he does is says, your sins are forgiven. It's important to recognize the, the interconnection between sin and, and illness sometimes. This is God's way of getting our attention sometimes. And then he goes on to say, see, this is the part that nobody practices. People, people want to lay hands on people and do all that because, well, it's biblical to do that. But then James doesn't just say to do that. So how do we choose, okay, I'll, I'll lay hands on them and, and put oil on them, but, but this next part, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed? That's not normally the way things are practiced. Healing services very rarely have a, a confession component in that, but James would say they should that these things should be involved. And he says, confess your sins to one another. He doesn't say, go confess them to a priest. He says, confess your sins to one another. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, when, when he had a, a, a renegade underground seminary in Nazi Germany, uh, required his um, students to have a confessing partner. And the reason that he had that was because he said that, that he realized in his own life he was confessing sins that were of a horrible nature, and who knows what they were, um, probably way less than things that that we would do, but but he said he realized he was confessing those things and kind of blowing right through him and going on with his life, and he had no sense of actually confessing to a holy God. But when he had to confess to a brother, he was mortified at the things that he had to say. And so it's important that we confess our sins to one another, that that we actually make them real. And they become real for us, and the horror of them becomes real for us whenever we have to tell somebody else what we've done. If I had to tell people I was proud and arrogant and, you know, I committed adultery by lusting in my heart after a woman, and I hated my brother, and so I've committed murder today. Those things, they take on a different aspect (laughs) when you say them to somebody else, and then then it humbles you in a different way. And, And James connects that in praying with one another over the forgiveness of sins with healing. So he says, he doesn't say they're always connected to one another, but he says sometimes they are, and sometimes, and we need to deal with that reality. So, uh, you know, for those of you out there who are doing healing services, I would, I would encourage you to include a component of confession, a possibility of component of confession, and it should be done privately, not with a whole group. One of the things that was the hallmark of the East African revival in the 1930s was this public confession of sin. Well, the problem became that some of these sins that you're, publicly professing have impact on other people and sometimes involved other people, and and they might not have been ready for you to confess that out loud. It might not be a great thing for you to confess that you were having uh, uh, an affair with another man's wife. Well, that's your sin, and you just confessed it on her part as well. And so, no, it would have been better for you to go and confess that to somebody else and repent of that, somebody you could trust not to share it, because now you've created multiple problems by your own repentance, <clears throat> the prayer of a righteous man he says has great power in its effects and what does a righteous man mean it means a man without without sin well can i be without sin yep i can if i confess my sins because he's faithful and just to forgive sins and they're gone away as far as the east is from the west Elijah he says was a man of like nature with ourselves and he prayed fervently that it might not rain and for 3 years and 6 months it didn't rain on the earth then he prayed again and the heaven gave rain and the earth gave brought forth its fruit So he says, pursue righteousness that your prayers might be heard. And it's important that we pursue that righteousness. It's exactly the same thing that we see in all these lessons, that if we're pursuing his kingdom, then we're pursuing his righteousness in our own lives. And and the more that we take on the character of God, the more we know the mind of God, and the more often we'll see our prayers answered in the way we ask